This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, which invests in educators and lifts up the Kansas City region and is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. A new poll reveals the political beliefs of teachers. The real question is, how should whether a teacher is Democrat or Republican affect their work in class? Also, we've marked a sad anniversary five years since the Sandy Hook school shooting. We ask our teachers what the legacy of that tragedy is still today. Finally, net neutrality. Yeah, Redditors and net activists didn't like the decision to get rid of it, but our teachers worried too. All that plus a special holiday edition of Kids These Days on this edition of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned journalist. And I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who are just this close, this close to getting on holiday break. Just a few more days. Let's introduce them. Greg Brenner, what do you teach? Uh, high school social studies. And we should say congratulations. It's been a while since we've heard you on the podcast. It because has. Uh, New baby. First time dad right here. Um, awesome. Thank Yay. you. Thank you. So if uh, if I, it sounds like I haven't gotten much sleep, it's because I have not gotten much sleep. <laughs> yeah, well, I will, if you start to ramble, I'll cut you off. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Luann Fox, what do you teach? I teach high school English. I'm glad to have you back. And Ryan So, what do you teach? I'm a K-5 speech-language pathologist. And Greg, Luann, Ryan, glad to all have you. All three of them are educators at public schools or public charter schools in the Kansas City metro area. Let's get to it. 2017, the year, began with the inauguration of President Donald Trump, and it is ending with a partisan fight over taxes. In between, there have been women's marches, protests at airports over proposed travel bans, NFL players kneeling during the national anthem, and an extremely contentious Senate election spiked by allegations of sexual misconduct with teenage girls. Add to that several ghastly mass shootings, including the deadliest in American history at an outdoor concert in Las Vegas, a war of words between the U.S. and North Korea, and the ongoing Me Too national conversation that America is having. And I think it is safe to say it was a very hard, if not impossible, year for teachers to ignore or keep politics out of their classrooms as all these events roiled around our country and the world. And in fact, that is one major premise of this podcast, that political and cultural events in our national life do indeed filter into schools and affect kids and teachers. And this year, you might be able to argue that more than ever, which makes a new survey of teachers conducted by the Education Week Research Center good fodder for discussion on our last new episode of 2017. The center surveyed a nationally representative sample of more than 1,200 educators, most of them classroom teachers, but also including principals, district administrators, and school support staffers, about their political views. The survey had a margin of error of plus or minus 5%. And here are some Major findings, 41% of teachers in this survey describe themselves as Democrats, 30% as independents, and 27% as Republicans. About half the respondents say they voted for Hillary Clinton in the 2016 presidential election. 29% say they voted for Donald Trump. 13%, a relatively high proportion, I thought, say they voted for a third-party candidate. And 8% said they did not vote. And 43% classify themselves as political moderates, 24% call themselves liberal, 23% conservative, 5% quote very liberal, and 4% quote very conservative. Those figures create a general overall picture of teachers' political makeup based on this survey at least. There are a number of other issues and questions that I think are of note in this 
survey, and we'll get to those and filter those into our conversation later. But first, I guess these initial numbers about the political leanings of teachers as a professional class of people, um, your reactions, surprised by the numbers? Do they, they match up with your experiences and your colleagues? Isn't just this another example of liberal media? Oh, well. Oh. well this, was, this was a scientifically <laughs> run news. survey. Of course, we can't say evidence-based anymore, but. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. No, but uh, there, there is the, the, the trend or at least the um, thought out there that the, the more educated you are in general, the more liberal uh, one tends to be. And so I mean, that would pertain to teachers um, as well. Um, what I would like to see is is maybe a split between um, rural teachers and suburban urban teachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, being from an urban area, obviously this it, it's very he- heavily liberal. I Your I would staff, like to see you yeah who you work with yes uh, I would love to see out in in the rural areas um, what staffs what teachers out there if if they're a little bit more conservative like um, you know the areas they're in or if they are also a little bit more liberal than than a lot of the families that they serve right this idea that. Uh, teachers generally are, at least are are seen or, or there's oftentimes the assumption that teachers are maybe more liberal. Um, why is that the mm-hmm. case? And is it true or is it is it just a bad assumption? That does seem to be the uh, the assumption or, or at least the portrayal of, of um, teachers, especially the higher one gets in, in teaching, like in, in academia uh, at the college level. Um, and and as as teachers, we're kind of fighting that, that stereotype a little bit. Um, it's and it's weird for for us or for me coming from an urban background where um, almost everybody is liberal. Um, trying to put the brakes on that and and try to get kids to see the opposite side, and then kids thinking that I'm you know not liberal or I'm conservative because I'm actually trying to get them to you know, portray try to think of how other people might see it. Um, and so I think that's that's also like what what I feel like I'm trying to do is try to get them to think all right. Here's here's where you guys stand. Here's here. Let's look at the other side. Right. Like pol- like political feelings on your yeah. campus among your students are very kind of homogenous. Yeah, they, very very much so. Leaning liberal. Very uh, much so. Being almost ninety five percent Hispanic, very much liberal. Uh, your student body. Yes, yeah. Luann, it seems like you have something in your a thought in your head. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I was thinking when you said, uh, "Is this just a bad assumption?" And I've just been kind of like. Uh, processing this through, and I was thinking, well, like, why would we have that assumption? And then I was just kind of like, you know, uh, fast-forwarding all these uh, movie pieces of, like, when you see movies of teachers, they're always about teachers that are, like, working for the underdog. And, I mean, that's what makes for a good story anyway in teaching, and that's what's out there in the public sphere. It'd be like, what is a good teacher? It's like what we actually see. And, And generally those those do look to be like a lot more liberal leaning. I mean, you don't see really good stories of teachers that tend to be conservative. They don't, they're not on the screen. So that's interesting. That's something I hadn't considered. You know, uh, in addition to the, the, the survey results, this education week in reporting this survey talked with multiple educators who say they often um, try to either shield their politics from the job entirely, like they don't want to to give their give away their political views in class or kind of like what Greg was saying may try to especially if they're a social studies teacher like you are Greg bring in a little bit more ideological balance in, in their class um, for various reasons teachers at least in this education week piece seem to believe it's not appropriate to try to influence students with their personal political beliefs others actually express discomfort in being open about their politics one way or another because they work in communities and schools, kind of to your point, Greg, that, that don't either match their beliefs or are very homogenous one way or another, um, liberal or conservative. 
Um, do you feel this need to be like politically neutral as a teacher in front of your students? Or, or do you, f- in fact, feel the opposite, that, that this is a, a time to be political? I, ca- I kind of think of what you're talking about in terms of like, can we talk about religion in school? Do we do we espouse religion in public school? And I was thinking, well, I talk about religion as it comes up in the literature and as it comes up in whatever it is I'm dealing with, with an essay or whatever. Um as a, as a human being, I need to espouse those general awesome principles of, of how to get along. And so in terms of religion, that's what I do. I make it be like, well, these are general truths that we know. You know, These are universal good ways to be. And I try to make that go into politics as well. I mean, generally, we should be good to people. Generally, we should, we should help people. And um, because of my constituents being kind of mixed, I, I sort of teach in an upper class area. Area, um, they will they will try to throw down sometimes on uh, what it, what does it actually mean to help people who are not as well off as, as they are. Yeah, and they will say like, well, I mean, anybody can get ahead in America who really wants to. I mean, I will literally have students who will tell that to me, and I'm like, what backs that up? And largely, it's their own home experience because they have wealthy that's a, parents. That's and, a belief you personally don't necessarily agree absolutely, with. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. but I try to yeah. make them see that all the way through to the end, and I try to make them see that it's 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 within the confines of the, the bubble that so they like live it. in. I'm trying to be, you know, ginger but firm about that as yeah. well. Uh, Greg and Luann, your high school teachers. Ryan, what is it? You're an elementary school teacher. Yeah. How does politics play out maybe differently at the elementary school level than what you're hearing Greg and Luann talk about? If it's different at all, it might not be different. Yeah, I mean, a lot of what we see at the elementary level is um, students have the political beliefs that their parents have. And so I'm I'm a proponent of all educators being politically neutral. Um, I believe that parents uh, should be able to send their kids to schools and not feel like their rights and the morals and values that are being taught at home are being infringed on at school. And so I believe that since we are public service agencies that we should be politically neutral. Um, By no means do I believe that um, we should not discuss issues political issues, but we should present all the information and present all sides. It's so it's interesting. You're, so you're, you're very clear about that position that you take personally. Have you felt that belief challenged at all over the past year as things have become a little bit more polarized in the greater United States? It's been hard. <laughs> I, I think it's been hard for everybody. But um, in, in what ways have you been or your school or your colleagues have been challenged to stay politically neutral, as you say? Um, I definitely in in 2016 when the election was going on, um, our superintendent sent out this huge. Um, they they did this big. Uh, I don't want to call it a campaign, but they sent out information saying that teachers are to remain neutral in the classroom and like at guidelines, school. Basically. Yeah, yeah, guidelines um, for how we are able to express our political views. Um, he said that outside of the school, we can participate in any campaign activities that we would like to, but in school, we're to remain neutral and to not let our political beliefs um, be known by Did you or students. any of your colleagues have a problem with that? I don't think so. Um, I think in, in most districts, it's written in our board policy that um, politically we are to remain neutral. And so I, I didn't see anybody raise any fuss about it because, you know, when we're not at our job, we can... Um, express ourselves how we how we please. Yeah, in some ways, just thinking through it, though, it seems like being trying to be neutral in in some ways is almost a disservice 
to our students in that if, if the law, I guess like what Luann was saying, we don't want to color how, uh, what a kid thinks politically. We want them to think for, for themselves because that's really the, the end goal, right? We want them to, to be able to think critically, think for themselves, come to their own conclusions and make their own decisions. Um, and it's going to be really hard to do that if we cannot have frank and open discussions about where we're at. And I know this applies differently with elementary school, middle school, mm-hmm. high school. Um, and just the way you teach is going to be, in, in some ways, a political act. Um, the curriculum that that we select, you know, because we do have some leeway with it, is a political or can be seen as a political act. And and I imagine, um, Luann, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure some parents, even if you present both sides of an argument, say you're, ta- you're tackling abortion or religion, mm-hmm. and you do, you do present both sides of the argument, some parent would probably come along and call and say, I heard you were talking about X, and you support this, and you shouldn't be saying this to my kid. Or even bringing mm-hmm. it up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it might be seen as, as over the line. So I took a risk last year uh, right at election time, and I had my students do a visual rhetoric kind of exercise, and I wanted them to bring in something and then say what the claim was, basically, and I I left it just to pictures. So um, many students uh, took in pictures at the time that would reflect a kind of a liberal bias because it was all fraught with the election at that point last year and everything, and then... And the one student who I know was a pretty conservative student just uh, sat uh, nicely by and everything. And then when he presented his picture, it was um, absolutely on the other side. It had a picture of um, – uh, was like a caricature of uh, Donald Trump putting out a fire in America and MAGA had come out of the fire extinguisher. And the idea was that Obama had set the world, the country on fire and Trump was the one to um, – you know, uh, put all those fires out and come to everybody's rescue. So um, he's talking about what the claims that picture were making. And the picture was making, go to lunch or whatever. And I have like seven students who like won't go to lunch. And they're like looking at me. And they're like, what are you going to do about this? And, you know, while it was just us at lunch, and I'm like, nothing. And uh, he, he fulfilled the assignment. This is great. And they're like, but you don't agree with this, do you? And I'm like, it doesn't matter if I agree with this or not. He fulfilled the assignment. And they're like, but this is enraging us. And I'm like, you people need to just go to lunch. And I said, you know, what he displayed was that he could sit nicely by while you were presenting and he he did those good behaviors and you did not do that as well. And, and they really wanted to task me um, for not exposing because you well you don't agree with that don't, right Miss Fox you don't agree with that Miss Fox and I'm like it, that's not the point the point is that we were airing these and we were getting these out and we, there was an assignment that dealt with uh, something specific and, and it was fulfilled and what I wanted them to understand was that they needed to have a more civil discourse about it. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City's students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. Last month, a gunman went on a rampage in the small, unincorporated community of Rancho Tejama in Northern California. This killing spree resulted in five people being killed and at least nine injured. The gunman, who allegedly had had disputes with his neighbors and his wife precipitating the shootings, was also shot and killed by law enforcement. His shooting spree encompassed several locations throughout Rancho Tejama, including the local elementary school. The gunman reportedly sprayed bullets at the school building, but he wasn't able to gain access to the inside of the school. That's because, as the Hartford Current reports, 
The school went into lockdown immediately after a secretary heard gunshots nearby and initiated lockdown procedures. School personnel got all children inside the building, closed the exterior doors, and barricaded the school in a matter of just about 47 seconds. The gunman, who was reportedly targeting a student at the school who was the child of one of the neighbors he had been having a dispute with, ultimately fired some 100 rounds at the school building. Now, two students did sustain bullet wounds, but nobody inside the school was killed. A parent who witnessed it all because she just dropped off her child said afterwards that the school staff knew what to do. No one stumbled. No one was hiding. They just ran to their classrooms like they had been told to do. Many articles and reports after the Rancho Tejama shooting noted that it came very close to the five-year anniversary of the Sandy Hook school shooting in Newtown, Connecticut, in which a gunman killed 20 first graders and six educators in one of the worst and really most searing mass shootings in modern American history. And many drew a clear line between that earlier tragedy and the one that was largely avoided at the school in Rancho Tejama. As the Hartford Current notes in this recent article marking the five-year anniversary of Sandy Hook, the near-flawless response of the teachers and school staff at Rancho Tejama is uh, a legacy, in a way, of Sandy Hook. The article goes on, the, quote, Newtown shootings forever altered the way American schools approach safety and assess risk, ushering in an era in which schools feel particularly vulnerable to the threats of shootings and students must know what to do in case one happens, end quote. So now teachers and students of all grades are regularly trained in active shooter drills. They are nearly as commonplace as fire drills. School doors that were once left unlocked are now fortified with buzzers and automatic locks. Procedures for guests to check into schools now involve photo IDs and exterior cameras outside schools' main entrances. And yes, some districts are going as far as to allow some school staff to carry guns while at school. It's hard to argue against such steps. Every Town Research, a gun control advocacy nonprofit, says there is on average one school shooting every week in America. The latest, most high-profile one being a shooting at Aztec High School in northwest New Mexico that left three people dead. But NPR notes there is a growing debate over what approaches to take for training students and teachers for active shooter situations. And some argue that a particular type of training that involves mock shooters with air guns may in fact be too intense. So we want to take a bit of time to talk about this. And um, I do want to acknowledge straight away just how I think for a lot of educators, speaking about Sandy Hook can be very um, emotionally draining and hard, and it's it's a very tough topic. And just reading about that uh, tragedy once again, preparing for this conversation was extremely difficult. Um, the loss of those students and teachers, and, and just the, the details of that incident, are, are very hard to swallow even today. All three of you are at schools that do um, at least once a year active shooter trainings. Uh, what's the balance between yes, being prepared, like having that kind of in- instinctual reaction that the school in Rancho Tejama had, and then also, um, you know, maybe devoting too much time and focusing too much on 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 this potential scenario. I th- I, I'll just speak, and I'll just say I think that it it's important to actually expose kids to it because. People do have different reactions, and um, when I was reading one of the articles preparing for this, um, then some adult have to go pick up a kid who just froze. I mean, she didn't know a little elementary kid; she just froze, and it's like, you, how do we take care of the ones who can't take care? And we have to do that. I mean, and I think that if we have some kind of blanket, like we can identify that, so the kids can see, I'm I'm the kind of kid that's going to help the the teacher barricade the door, and I'm going to be the kind of kid who maybe has more home trauma or whatever, and just cannot deal, and will need to have the help of other classmates. I I do think that part is probably yeah. important. Is that Ryan dealing with elementary school students? Does that ring true? Yeah, I think that's the most difficult part about the training is that 
our training at least doesn't involve the students. And okay. so that takes out a huge variable. I mean, probably the most important variable. So we don't know how our students are going to react. And in my building in particular, we have um, a few self-contained special education classrooms with kids with significant physical and cognitive needs. So um, that's one variable that's taken out of our training that, that we really need to think about and that we, that the school really needs to consider. It sounds like you would, you would want the kids to be exposed to that training. Um, maybe not the, the training with the intensity that we have like it, but definitely, definitely, yeah, firing. practicing, locking yeah. down and what we do and how we would barricade our classrooms and how we would sit and, and react if that were to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't train with, with students either, so that is a variable. Another variable that, that was brought up to me and I didn't think about that is, is our poor substitute teachers because at any yeah. given day, you know, there's going to be several substitutes at, at the building and, and what do they do um, unless they're, they're building-level subs that are always there that are part of the training. Um, it just it seems like there's so many variables that it's – try to prepare as much as possible, but when it, it happens, it's not, you're not going to be totally prepared for everything. Yeah. Well, one of the, one of the victims of the Sandy Hook shooting was a substitute teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, how, we've talked a lot about the, the actual drills that you go through um, as schools. I guess in, in what other ways has your job and your outlook on education changed in the past five years? I've had relatives actually say to me, um, I bet you didn't think this would be a high-risk occupation when you went into it, you know, 20-some years ago. And it's one of those things that's like people outside, they think of it as high-risk. That's interesting and Just sad. because there's the number of school shootings that occur and the, the number of high-profile school Absolutely. shootings that occur. Yeah. Do you see it as a high-risk profession? I don't want it to be a high-risk. You know, I try to I try to not embrace that at all, but it's just it's one of those that just, God, it just— it, it hurts every single one. So well, when we have the high-profile cases like uh-huh. like Sandy Hook, and we see uh, every time that there's a massacre, the the Onion puts out the same exact article, just changing the name. You know, basically like the that that you know, America uh, you know has the same problem that we can't seem to ever you know get around. You know, go over. How how, how does this happen? Says so the only nation on yeah, earth yeah, where yeah. this yeah. happens over and over, over, and over again. Yeah. Right, right, and. In in some ways, it's like, um, yeah, the, this keeps on happening, and um, it. The thing that's changed for me the most is just the anger, um, on a personal level, that this just keeps on happening. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for having the conversation, um, even if it was a tough one. Our next topic: Be honest. Did you know what net neutrality meant before, say, a month ago? Be honest. Do you know what it means now? <laughs> Just a few days before the taping of this episode, the Federal Communications Commission voted three to two along party lines to scrap the Obama-era rules governing the Internet known as net neutrality. In a nutshell, those rules mandated that Internet service providers, including cable companies like Comcast and Verizon, have to treat all Internet traffic equally. Without so-called net neutrality, those companies could, in theory, block certain sites or slow down the speed of others or charge different fees for some services like, say, Netflix streaming or shopping online at Amazon. At least that's what critics, and they are legion, say about this FCC decision. Proponents of doing away with net neutrality say these fears are overblown. Cable companies, this line of argument goes, don't want to antagonize customers more than they already do by, say, Mm -hmm. buffering Stranger Things or charging more to stream this week tonight. 
There's a free market segment. Uh, there's a free market argument for what the FCC did, but we want to focus less on the principles of net neutrality and consider more the potential impacts on schools and teachers. After all, digital technology and the internet are now, for better or worse, an integral part of education and the day-to-day business of teaching and learning in America's schools. Educators' anxiety about doing away with net neutrality seem to come in two big buckets. First, there are worries about how it may affect actual connection speeds and content used in schools. Because of things like the federal E-rate program, which subsidizes Internet connections for mostly low-income and rural schools, an estimated 94 percent of public schools in America now have high-speed Internet. So will getting rid of net neutrality affect that? Will some content that right now is free and easy to access for teachers and students in school start getting charged fees? Will school districts be charged more by Internet service providers because of their higher rates of usage? We don't know, but those are some fears. Secondly, educators worry about the effects on their students outside of school. Despite the widespread prevalence of high-speed Internet in schools, the Pew Research Center still notes a broadband equity gap exists. Some 5 million mostly low-income children in both urban and rural areas are estimated to not have reliable broadband access at home. So will no net neutrality widen that inequity? What incentive will Internet service providers have to provide high-speed Internet to impoverished areas of the country? So instead of talking about net neutrality per se and getting into the intricacies of that, unless, of course, you are really seasoned, impassioned Redditor and you want to talk about that, we can um, We'd rather have a discussion about just like how vital and intrinsic internet usage is for students and teachers in today's education and what a potential, I say potential underlined, interruption or diminishment of service could do to that educational process. So very basic here. Um, Do your schools have reliable high-speed internet? And if so, how are your students using it on a day-to-day basis? It seems like I think I saw something like 50 percent of, of students across the country have a one to one technology. So they have yeah. they have a Chromebook or, or some type and of laptop and, and, yeah. and, and we have one to one where like if the Internet goes down, it's almost like Armageddon. Because so, but I mean, it, almost from the teacher point of view too, like we our work is expected to be online. We're expected to use Google Classroom, uh, and if we can't use that, I mean, even just printing off copies, it, it is via the wireless, which is tied to the internet. So again, if if any of that goes down, we're we are SOL. We've yeah. kind of shot ourselves in the foot. And so in 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 a, in a way, the internet has has become kind of like coffee, a, a socially acceptable addiction for, for teachers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm getting a lot of nods around the table. Ryan and Luann, your experiences jive with that. Our district just put Wi-Fi on the buses, too. So our students are constantly So they can work connected. on the way to school. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, wow. And the, and the idea is that, you know, we I, I work in a lower-income school, and so the idea is that these students might not have Wi-Fi at home so that mm-hmm. so they can work on their homework on, on the huh. bus. That makes sense. Uh, so I guess what happens when there's no internet? What happens if, like, on those days when the electricity goes down or a connection goes down or for whatever reason it's slow? What happens? I would love to say, you know, hey, just give me a group of, of kids in a room and I can teach. Um, it's much more difficult now than than, than it used to be uh, because, one, our work is all online, so whatever we were going to do, it, it, it's there, it's online, it's harder to access. Two, student attention is tied to whatever we are projecting, which is tied to, like, whatever is online. Uh, it, it's it's much harder to keep their attention and keep their focus when we are, we are trending to or trying to um, chunk everything in t- 10 to 20-minute segments, and a lot of that is based on either videos, PowerPoint, what have you. Um, 
if we can have more like in class discussion with a book with no with no tech, awesome. But that doesn't happen very often. Yeah, uh, so it's almost like you're, the students are conditioned to right. to learn via online material or through Google Classroom or through online video. So if that goes away, they you're saying they struggle to to keep their attention or, or, or engage with content in another way. Yeah, I had my projector go down once several years ago, and it was out for, for a couple of weeks, and, and kids would come in like, this is boring. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. I'm doing the best I can using poster paper and whatnot to, you know, it, it's, it, it makes it tough because they're conditioned to, to expect that. Well, we'll wait and see what the new rules effects will be. Stay tuned. We're going to do Kids These Days, a special edition of Kids These Days, after the credits. This episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control, and what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you find us, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, Kids These Days, a special holiday edition, we'll say, just a couple of days before these teachers get off for break. Tell us the best gift your kids brought you either this year or a memorable gift from a prior year around the holidays. So I guess kids, these what are kids into giving these days? Uh, Greg, what's yours? Yeah, um, this is very apropos of, of this weekend. Several years ago, four or five years ago, had a, a twins um, who were really, really, really awesome students, soccer players. Um, and they, they knew, uh, they didn't understand it, but they knew that I love Star Wars. Uh, and so they, they surprised me with a Star Wars throw blanket, a plush Star Wars, which is just awesome. It's warm, it's, and I still use it to this day. And, and uh, man, thank you so much, Evelyn and Leslie. That was awesome. <laughs> what, is, what is the image on the plush? There's, it, it's, it's got like Boba Fett and, and Jabba and Han Solo. So it's, there's, there's multiple. Um, it's great. Have you seen the new Star Wars? Movie? I have not, so no, please, no spoilers. <laughs> okay. I have not seen it either. Uh, Luann, what is uh, the best gift your kids have given you? Ever. Um, it was not, well, it was not for Christmas, actually. It was, uh, um, I, I, I teach the year of the AP exam, and uh, one of the students, uh, you know, passed the AP exam and did really well, and he came back when he was a senior in, in the fall, and he... He gave me a bracelet that he had made for had made for me, um, and um, and he had written a whole paragraph and sewn it up in a pouch and put it in there together. And basically, it was to tell me that I was like a subtle wind because I I was um, below them when they were you know these kids are trying to spread their wings. He 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 made the analogy beautiful or whatever, and <laughs> you know. But it was just one of those things where he put that much thought into it, and it was a beautiful bracelet, and um, um, he just really appreciated. Um, all, all the work that we did together. Oh, that is very sweet. Yeah. Uh, Ryan, what are you, what kind of gifts, what's the best gift you've gotten? You know, I have to agree with Luann. The homemade, handmade gifts, I think, are the best because, you know, they made those from their heart at their home and we're thinking of you at home. Um, but I do love me a good sausage, summer sausage and cheese uh, <laughs> right platter. So that, was, that, that went a different direction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, went a different direction. <laughs> so just, kids just saying. <laughs> yeah. yes. If you want to go get that summer sausage and cheese plate yeah. from Mr. Yeah. So, he'll appreciate it. 
A programming note, we will be taking the next week off from releasing a new episode. Our teachers are on break. Some of them are going out of town. So uh, we will not be taping a new episode. But look in our feed two weeks from now, the first week of the new year. In fact, we will drop our New Year's special where we look back on some education highlights of 2017 and also look forward to 2018. That will appear in your feed the first week of January. Thanks to our teachers this week, Greg Brenner, Luann Fox, and Ryan So. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. And remember, kids, be nice to your teachers, especially around the holidays. Mm-hmm.